Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are revisiting a topic that we talked about in 2011, but we absolutely need to talk about it again because there are lots of conversations going on these days about catcalling and street harassment. Yeah, because I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Hollaback video that just came out not too long ago featuring a woman, she's an actress, walking through the streets of New York for 10 hours and facing numerous catcalls and street harassment from men on the street. The video itself attracted a lot of controversy because of the way it was edited to edit out a lot of white men who were doing catcalling and various street harassment things um, to feature mostly men of color. But that being said, the video itself sparked a huge conversation online between and among men and women about what is street harassment? When is it just complimenting? When is it something scary? And what does it mean for all of us at large? Yeah. And speaking of Hollaback, which is the nonprofit that um, produced that viral video, we first talked about street harassment on the podcast when Hollaback was first gaining a lot of media attention. Um, it was founded in 2005 by Emily May, and it was started specifically to attract more attention to the issue of street harassment and to facilitate bigger conversations about the frequency of street harassment and how it very much is harassment and also give people tools to fight back and also connect with other people on this issue. And the fact that pretty much any time a woman, cisgender, transgender, and gay men as well, leave their houses and walk down the sidewalk, a lot of times that means dealing with what we euphemistically call catcalling. And speaking to that viral video as well, I mean, the response to it, just highlighted problems on top of problems for the very fact that Shoshana Roberts, who is the actress in it, immediately received rape threats. She has alerted the the police in the neighborhood she lives in that this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. She These are the threats she's received. So in case something happens, they'll know who she is when she calls. Yeah. And I, to me, that's I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but there's uh, echoes of what's happening with Anita Sarkeesian there, too, in terms of like, so you you call out a problem. People say, no, it's not a problem, but I'm going to threaten to kill you or rape you or rape you. Yeah, exactly. And so another issue, of course, with things that this video sort of dug up is the fact that a lot of people's response to it is just. Women, this is your problem. I'm just trying to give you a compliment. You're playing the victim role. You just want to be the victim. You just want attention. And, you know, making it more about the woman and it being her problem than it being a social problem at large. Yeah, it's just a compliment. Learn how to take a compliment. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're curious on the difference between catcalls and compliments, 
You can go to Stuff I Never Told You's YouTube page and watch the video If Cat Calls for Compliments, in which you'll get a lot of examples of the differences between the two. So, first up, though, let's define street harassment and also offer some statistics so we can get a grasp of how often this is happening. This is not just something happening to Shoshana Roberts when she is making a video for Holla Back. So, street harassment, to define it, is the sexual harassment of... Typically, cis and trans women in public spaces by typically men who are strangers. And that includes both verbal and nonverbal behavior. It tends to be comments on the woman's physique and her very presence in public. A lot of the time, it also has to do with smiling. Hey, woman over there. Smile. Smile. I want to see you smile. So how common is it? Uh, there was a nationally representative study sponsored by Stop Street Harassment, which found that 65% of all women and 25% of all men had experienced it. And among the women, 23% had been sexually touched, 20% had been followed, and 9% had been forced to do something sexual. I think that is a different way of saying sexual assault. Um, LGBT-identified respondents were also likelier to experience it. One statistic they highlighted was that by age 17, 70% of LGBT individuals experience street harassment compared to 49% of heterosexual people. And it also happens around the world. Yeah, um, the site Medium got into this by assigning diaries, essentially, to women in cities all around the world, in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Mexico City, Berlin, in Italy, in Mongolia, in Tel Aviv, Nairobi, and Singapore. Um, and based on these women's experiences, they found that the woman in Mexico City experienced the worst catcalling. She had a high of 29 catcalls in a single week. Versus Tel Aviv and Los Angeles, which tied for the least catcall heavy locations with just two each. And there were a lot of common hallmarks for this kind of behavior. Um, it tended to happen most often during commute time, specifically when women were alone. Although men doing the catcalling were just as likely to be alone as with other men. Um, and the most common form of it just commanded a smile. They just want to see a smile, Caroline. Yeah, I used to get this um, all the time when I took public transportation to work. Not that I would not continue to. It's just I moved and blah, blah, blah. I just don't want you to think poorly of me. I wish I could take it. Anyway, um, yeah, I used to get this all the time. And what was so weird is I never got it from a man in a business suit. I always got it from homeless men who were hanging out at the train station. I mean, that's my personal experience. I know everyone has different experiences, but. And speaking to that experience, some people have talked about the socioeconomic intersections with this because it's a lot about not compliments, obviously, but it has a lot to do with power. Right. And power over public spaces. And. Catcalling and street harassment, I should say, is often used as a tool by people who might feel more economically and socially marginalized to assert their power. And so in speaking to the BBC about why some men do this, 
Catherine Zippel, who is a sociology professor at Northeastern University, said, quote, oftentimes it's not really about the women. It's just about the men performing masculine acts for each other and establishing a pecking order amongst themselves. What's really going on is the dynamic among men. And in that, it's so it's so crucial to this conversation, to understanding it, that this is the dynamic among men that's happening in public spaces. Right, because, and I mean, this goes back forever as far as the conflict that occurs and has always occurred when women enter a public sphere. I mean, this is not catcalling and street harassment is not a new conversation. Kristen and I read one article that was like, oh, this is a problem that goes all the way back to the 1970s. And it definitely has roots much, much deeper and that go back much, much farther when women first left the home to begin with. Exactly. Pretty much as soon as we began entering the public sphere on a day-to-day basis, this issue arose. And a lot of this information is coming from Estelle Friedman, who is a scholar in Stanford's Clayman Institute for Gender Research. And she also wrote the book Redefining Rape. And just speaking of some etymology when it comes to catcalling, I thought this was really interesting. The term comes from theater It goes back to the mid-17th century, a combination of cat and call, originally denoting a kind of whistle or squeaking instrument used to express disapproval. Now, when we get into street harassment in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, it went by a different name. It wasn't so much cat calling, but mashing and the masher, both of which also have theatrical roots. Yeah, this Kristen and I got so caught up in this reading about the mashers. It is fascinating stuff. And it is just further proof that the harassment of women in public spaces is definitely not a new thing. So the term mash comes from 19th century theater slang, meaning a sweetheart or a crush, typically of a male audience member on a female actress. And, for example, in 1882, a theater guide defined mashers as, quote, masculine theater goers whose wild ambition is to attract and hold female attention. Now, the first time I heard about mashing was actually um, in reading about sort of the cultural history of female friendship. And around the same time, too, you would describe having intensely strong, like uh, platonically passionate feelings for a girlfriend as a smash. And they would also they would exchange these um, mash notes to each other. But outside of that realm and outside the theater world, mashers became known in the late 19th and early 20th century as the aggressive male street flirt who, quote, were usually depicted in newspapers and editorial cartoons as well-dressed white men whose behaviors were more irritating and comical than menacing. And there were also men who viewed themselves as lady killers along the lines of a Don Juan and other natalie-dressed gentlemen, because that was another thing. They were often very, very snappy dressers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also the Parisian version of the flaneur, which is the detached male spectator of the urban crowd. Yeah, basically men whose quote-unquote job it is to stand around and just watch women and provide their commentary as if they are at the theater. And also attract their attention through their, through their fashionable clothes. Like dandies. 
And I think it's key to note, though, that in popular culture at the time, like those editorial cartoons that Kristen mentioned, it is important to mention that they were depicted as white. That's key because these are snappily dressed gentlemen. They're, they're mostly harmless ladies. They're just, they're just offering you a, a quirky kind of compliment. They're just kind of annoying. It's no big deal because at the time, the perception of black men interacting with society, white society ladies was painted in an entirely different picture at the time. Of course, like even black men making direct eye contact with a white woman would have been considered outright sexual assault. And so when you code nonviolent mashers as white, it says a lot about sort of racial divisions at the time. Yeah, because um, really it was age of consent campaigns and these anti-masher initiatives that were mostly focused to white men, whereas black men were considered violent sexual creatures. They were the rapists. Mm-hmm. White men were only to be feared for perhaps whisking away a young woman who was too young to consent or doing this mashing. When in reality, Friedman talks about, it was native-born white men because uh, new immigrants to the country were also lumped into this as well and considered more deviant and more of a danger to um, white American women. Whereas it was often the white men who were the worst when it came to street harassment since they claimed the streets as their territory, which does that sound familiar? Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, what's going on here, the social context that we're talking about, like Kristen said, I mean, here are white men who have, you know, quote unquote, been in charge. Then you have this influx of women who've always been at the home. Immigrants, where did they even come from? And people just of other classes and backgrounds. So suddenly, white these white men that we're talking about, these mashers, are having to assert their perceived dominance over everyone around them. All of a sudden, for the first time in these urban spaces, you have gender, class, and race all interacting and encountering one another in new ways for the very first time. And along with this, not only do you just have generally women entering the public sphere, but you also have the rise of department stores, this whole consumer culture that would get wealthy women out of their homes to go shopping. But also you have female clerks who would be working at the department stores and other jobs being open, those low-level clerical jobs being open more and more to women. And so... Meanwhile, you have mashing sort of being placed on the more benign end of the sexual assault spectrum at the time because it was less criticized than, say, underage sex and coercive seduction, but it nonetheless received national press attention. Right, as can be seen in the 1906 Chicago Tribune headline, What Can Be Done to Rid the Palmer House Block of Mashers? And I mean, this was, this was, there was a lot of, editorial space dedicated to drawing attention to these, you know, men who stood on street corners and hollered at women and made it difficult for them to enter and exit their buildings. Well, and women's magazines also started advising lady readers to avoid eye contact with men on the street and from doing anything to call attention to themselves, which also sounds awfully familiar to advice that we still hear as women today. Um, and there was a 1909 article in the New York Times, um, supposedly written by a working girl from Detroit, or maybe it was a letter to the editor. Um, and it noted how 
she figured out that the blank looks on women's faces on the subways were their, quote, armor against the offensive stares of the New York masher. I actually out loud when I read that said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because don't you don't you feel your face go dead? Well, you kind of do put on your armor sometimes when you when you know you're about to go into a public space. I do it any time I start as soon as I exit my driveway when I'm jogging and hit the main thoroughfare. It's sort of like, all right, here we go. And turn up the music. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest here and say that I'm not putting on my dead face because I think I might encounter some annoying women on the train or some annoying women at the mall or wherever. I'm putting on my dead face because I know that if I make eye contact with a man in a confined space, whether that's on a train, in an elevator, whatever, I'm opening myself up to entering into an interaction that I might not want to be a part of. Yeah, and we talked about how uh, there was that Guardian article we saw that said women have been fighting against street harassment since the 1970s with the reclaim the night movement but women really started hollowing back in the united states at least in the 1910s and we're going to talk about some of the ways that they started fighting back against the masher smashing the masher when we come right back from a quick break and now back to the show so picking up in the 1910s when women start hollowing back, as Kristen said, um, they, they really were not going to stand for these distasteful mashers on the street anymore. And they took matters into their own hands. Initially, however, the press had enlisted men to help protect women. But... Women were like, no, listen, I'm busy fighting for the vote and fighting for equal space in society. And I want my greater mobility. I want my access to work and leisure activities. I'm not going to let men interfere with my ability to get from point A to point B. And so I'm going to (laughs) take boxing classes. I'm going to take self-defense classes. And as evidenced by a photo that I found of a woman poking a man with her hat pin, I'm going to learn how to defend myself in general. Yeah, in 1910, the Women's Equal Suffrage Association sought to confront mashers or male flirts, or as they called them, obnoxious oglers. And they wanted to appoint special agents as female policemen to patrol for mashers. And this was actually how some of the very first Female police officers were hired mm-hmm. in the U.S. I didn't know that. That's when my brain exploded, yeah, Caroline. Including one here in Atlanta. Yeah. But it was all because women really wanted other women to help guide them through the streets and keep their eyes peeled mm-hmm. for the mashers. But in the meantime, a number of women began taking up exercise because this was also the early days of uh, physical exercise becoming Part of, you know, the, the healthy person's regimen. Uh, but some women also took boxing lessons to protect themselves against mashers. One Mrs. Frank Gilbert in Cleveland took boxing lessons and ended up clocking a streetcar masher. And she told the press that she wanted to form a self-defense, quote, society for the suppression and annihilation of mashers. Nice. Don't mess with Mrs. Frank Gilbert. She's probably mad because no one even knows her first name. Well, and then speaking again of hat pins, we get other stories of women and girls actively defending themselves against 
mashers, and and these really were press darlings, these stories. People loved reading about them. And what was so great and what I think we need more of today, if we're continuing themes today, the fact that the tone was respectful, it was admiring, it was supportive. The, The general overall theme of these stories was like, yeah, good for you, women. Don't take that awful mashing from those awful mashers on the street corner. You need to defend yourself. And by 1920, around 300 female police officers had been hired around the country at larger municipal police forces specifically to deal with this masher problem, which makes me realize that we have not done a podcast on women and police officers. But, hey, now we have our jumping off point for that. And, I mean, speaking of legal issues, women who were victims of street harassment were strongly encouraged to prosecute their tormentors. There were a few brave souls who really stepped up and said, no, I'm, I'm taking this guy to court, even though it could mean dragging your good name through the mud, even though people could perceive it as being some type of scandal or you sort of speaking out of your feminine womanly turn. Um, there are just a lot of women at this time saying, look, you guys, you won't give me the vote. Well, that was earlier, but I mean, I'm not going to stand up for this stuff anymore. Well, it was especially radical for black women to prosecute men in court as mm-hmm. well, because up to this point, I mean, and still with this, too, and, and we talked about this in our episode on the history of rape in the United States, how all of the focus on mashers was more concerned and really exclusively concerned over the safety of white women on the streets, because this is when we have the prevailing idea that, well, sexual assault can't really happen to black women because they're hypersexualized to begin with. And you also still have, you know, the construct of the black man as the violent rapist targeting white women. But there was a lot of conversation around street harassment in um, particularly in black newspapers of women talking to other women about this. And so by the 20s, you do start to see more black women, too, getting more directly involved in this, because can you imagine at the time being a black woman bringing a charge, an, a masher charge against a white man? That would have been I mean, I'm, I'm sure that would have been scandalizing for some people. Mm-hmm. But then after women get the vote with the 19th Amendment in 1920 and with the end of World War One, we see the anti-masher movement die down. I mean, it really reached this fever pitch mm-hmm. and then fades away as if it never happened almost. Yeah, but it's I mean, the context of it fading away is sort of icky because you you lose that whole idea of chivalrous masculinity and men enlisting men to help protect women from guys like that to the assertion of a more aggressive ideal of manhood around the same time that female flirtation becomes more popular and popularly depicted by actresses on screen like Clara Bow. And so you get this sentiment, this this prevailing notion that things like catcalling and street harassment are almost just more comical and normalized because, hey, they want to flirt with me. Yeah, it's almost the other side of the coin of we have the the emergence of the new woman. We have uh, sexuality starting to kind of become slightly more 
uh, normalized in terms of women expressing it as well as men. And so with that, though, it is that idea of, well, you want this, don't you? So here you go. Like, why why would it be strange at all for me to comment on your body if you're wearing clothes that are more revealing than ever before? And if you're wearing makeup like an actress on the screen and you are actively flirting with men, well, then why are you, <laughs> why don't you want to be talked to and yelled at on the street? And Estelle Friedman sums up this this transition pretty well uh, in Redefining Rape. She writes, after the 1920s, the negotiation of urban space for the purposes of wage earning, shopping or flirtation increasingly took the form of individual resistance rather than a social movement. For a short period, however, the revolt against the masher provided a political response to sexual vulnerability. Tributes to self-defense, suffragist visions of police authority, the willingness of black women to report white men to authorities, and the reactions of black men all contested white men's sexual entitlements. And I mean, I think that goes back to what I was saying about how great it was that newspapers back then were cheering women on for taking these men on. I mean, that's on the one hand, women, you shouldn't have to defend yourselves against these men. It shouldn't be happening. But the fact that they are being vocal and active, physically active about standing up to these guys and ended up being cheered on for it. I mean, I think that's an amazing thing. Well, and and it's just so incredible to think and mind boggling to think about the fact that we've been literally fighting for freedom in a public space for a century plus now since we've been in a public space. Exactly. And so the question then is why, why now this sort of 21st century anti-masher movement revival, um, I think a lot of it has to do with feminism and technology, kind of the in, the perfect intersection of those two things. Because if you look in the 1970s, second wave feminists absolutely focused on street harassment. They started the Reclaim the Night, also known as Take Back the Night initiatives, um, which, again, you have the focus on street harassment as more women entering the public and male dominated spaces of women you know, sort of uh, the revived idea of, hey, we can go get jobs, perhaps. Um, but then again, it sort of dies down a bit until 2005 when Emily May starts Holla Back, which really started, I mean, an incredible movement. Yeah, and this is, it's such a product of its time in terms of being a digital thing. Uh, you know, you go back to women who are taking boxing classes at the turn of the 20th century and saying, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to learn how to defend myself. And then you fast forward to the 2000s and you have women who are actually snapping cell phone pictures of the guys who are verbally attacking them. Or in the case of the woman who inspired Hollaback efforts, she snapped a cell phone picture of a guy who was publicly masturbating while staring at her, which she was then able to use successfully in his prosecution. Yeah, because while while catcalling is not illegal in New York City, it is in fact illegal to masturbate in public, just FYI. Um, but by taking on-street harassment from the social media approach, it has empowered men and women to identify and call out their harassers. And Emily May has talked before about how um, the idea evolved, too, not just from... Uh, that initial cell phone photo, but also in conversations with guy friends of hers 
about the experience of walking around mm-hmm. and one of them commenting like you walk down a completely different metaphorically speaking sidewalk than I do. Yeah. Just like n- they hadn't even realized before that experience of what street harassment feels like. And I think that's why a lot of times in response to these conversations, the knee jerk deflection is it's just a compliment. Why are you victimizing yourself? But the fact that it typically happens when you are isolated Mm -hmm. or possibly with other women. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever gotten yelled at when I've been with a male friend or a boyfriend or a brother or a father, whoever. Um, It's very specific in that kind of approach. It's intended to make you feel vulnerable. Right, exactly. And I mean, in terms of perspective, there was the one kind of social experiment that we read about where a woman dressed up like a man and a man dressed up like a woman and they sent them on their way through the streets. And the woman felt reported that she felt such relief at being invisible for once, that just being able to frickin walk down the street from point A to point B, whereas the man who was wearing fake breasts and everything. I mean, he was dressed as a woman, uh, found himself putting on his jacket to avoid, to try to deflect people staring at him at his fake chest um, and wishing that he had more clothes on because he just felt so gross being stared at. Well, and we heard from uh, a gay guy not too long ago who wrote into us um, because he has... Long hair. He mm-hmm. tends to wear tighter jeans. And I believe we even read the letter on um, a podcast episode a while back. But he was walking down the street, going home or going somewhere and was aggressively yelled at by a guy in a car who mistook him for a woman. And he said that he he was so it was so terrifying because the person followed him for a little while. And he finally turned around and yelled back at him. But he'd never experienced that before and the following I don't know if you've experienced this before Caroline but um, uh, I'll never forget being in uh, Bushwick in New York once with a girlfriend of mine and we were walking somewhere and we were followed for a few blocks it was terrifying we eventually ducked into a bar we happened to run across just to be around other people um, and and he ta- talked about this guy this listener in his letter talked about how Afterwards, he was just so confused and was wondering what he had done to bring it on himself. And the answer is nothing, because this is an issue that has been going on in this fight for safety in public spaces for so long. Yeah. And I mean, that's where that's where I mean, what you just said is where it's evident that this is a problem of individuals, certainly. It's a problem of the men who choose to harass people, men and women on the street. But it's also part of such a huge cultural issue of of women's not only women's safety and and men's safety, too, but of uh, allowing people to just exist, allowing people to go about their business in public. Well, and we need to I want to reemphasize as well the fact that a lot of these conversations are focused on usually cisgender women, but trans women are at much heightened levels, not only for being at risk of street harassment, but outright violence and mm-hmm. attack in public spaces as well. And that's something that, you know, needs to be ad- addressed too. And it's not just something that's happening in the U.S., even though um, 
a New Zealand camera crew conducted the same kind of social experiment as the Hollaback video where they had a model, an actual model, go out on uh, the street and walk around in a busy place. And she got <laughs> catcalled zero times. She got stopped once for someone like asking her for directions. And so it raised the question of, well, what's going on? What's the difference here? Um, mm-hmm. And and I don't I mean, honestly, I don't know the answer, but I mean, it's certainly been an issue to the point that there are now women only subway cars and taxi services in places like India and Japan in order to shield women from street harassment. But I mean, something like that causes its own problems because, OK, great, you're in your woman only train car. You're you're not going to get groped. You're not going to get harassed. But suddenly um, that separates the sexes completely. So a man who would be harassing someone when he does see a woman, it's an even rarer occurrence and he's even more likely to harass. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been a huge problem in India. And there's a lot of grassroots activism going on there to tackle it, as well as just the issue of sexual harassment, more generally speaking. Um, I thought it was really interesting that in 2011, Bangladesh officially did away with the Eve teasing euphemism. Catcalling um, was known by, and probably still is, euphemistically known as Eve teasing, or I should say street harassment is euphemistically known as Eve teasing. And uh, the courts did away with that in Bangladesh to categorize it as a form of sexual harassment. And also in Nepal, there was a law passed allowing police to immediately arrest someone suspected of street harassment without a warrant. So clearly this is, I mean, it's not just something going on in American streets. This is a global conversation that's happening. Um, and there are questions, too, in the U.S. about laws regarding public harassment. Because the thing about street harassment is that the kinds of hor- horrifying and sexually forward things that are yelled at women if you say that in a public space, if you say that at a workplace or a school, there are already laws in place to protect people against that, but mm-hmm. not so on the streets. Yeah. And so this gets into the issue of what's called uh, fighting words legally. And in our country, we have protections against fighting words, things like yelling fire in a theater or saying something to another human being that will create an unsafe situation. They actually got their start as a way to essentially uh, prevent guys from challenging each other to duels and then killing each other over an argument. And so while that legally has trickled down through the years, no such protection exists to women or men when it comes to street harassment and the language used when people do harass people on the street. Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that that's probably never going to happen, that the fighting words doctrine will be amended to that. But it definitely changed the way I thought about how it operates in a public space. Um but the thing about it is, Caroline, there are plenty of people who aren't men who also say, oh, my gosh, this is not harassment. It's still a compliment. And and before we close out the podcast, we do need to address that. Um, there was a woman or is a woman. She's not dead. <laughs> Doree Lawak, who kind of became the poster gal of pro cat callers when she wrote an op ed in the New York Post that went viral for kind of all the wrong reasons, because it was headlined, hey, ladies, cat calls are flattering. Deal with it. 
And I'm not going to waste my breath going over um, all of her reasons why she enjoyed being catcalled. Um, but there was a study we found from the journal Sexuality and Culture from 2010 looking closer at the context of catcalling to dig into that question of, well, is it complimentary? Because you do find, like, in pretty much anything you read about it, there's always a subset of people saying, well, I, I kind of like it. I kind of like hearing that I look good. Yeah, and, and there were, for instance, there were a lot of comments under the video of the actress who was walking through New York. There were a lot of comments um, calling her a lot of dirty words and saying, it's women like this that are the reason that men are afraid to come talk to me and tell me I look nice. Like, what's wrong with a man uh, coming and saying hello and giving me his number or whatever? And it's like, whoa, 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 these are different things. But it is important to discuss context. Well, and also, Caroline, there's the risk of forgetting to smile some days if people don't tell you to. I know. know. I forget all the time. It's not until I walk into work and Kristen yells at me from across the room to smile that I even remember. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to compliment you, girl. I know. But yeah, so this this study that Kristen is talking about found that lower contextual threat levels do have a bearing on how women perceive the catcalling, the harassment, the the eye contact, whatever it may be. Yeah, because there is this whole thing of harassment is in the eye of the beholder in terms to how um, threatening it feels. And so uh, this study conducted a lot of experiments and highlighted perception variables. In other words, the key things that sort of uh, influence that threat level. And that includes age, marital status, sex, attractiveness, familiarity status, job status of the perpetrator, demographic, sexual identity, and attitudes toward women of the observer. So that's also looking at how we as outsiders perceive the people watching the video Mm -hmm. of the woman walking through New York for 10 hours, how we perceive that and whether that is or is not harassment. And it really focused in on the attractiveness and age of the harasser, as well as being alone or with friends as the major context factors for how fearful a woman was at the prospect of these different street harassment scenarios they were presented with. Because there is a sticky question of, well, if he's young and hot, maybe maybe it's maybe it is more of a compliment than harassment yeah but i mean when you when you mix and match all of these perception variables i mean that has a lot to do with it i don't care how hot the guy is if he is like physically if he's following me down the street yelling at me I mean, that's still going to be a high threat situation that I'm going to perceive. It, you know, I, yes, there are so many different variables to take into account, but, um, and, and I don't discount that a lot of people will say, well, it's not as threatening if he's good looking or if he's rich or, or if he's driving a Bentley or whatever. Um, as opposed to if he's a guy sitting, sitting on a stoop outside of his apartment, but there's still, I don't know, there's just so many, contextual threat things to take into account. Well, that was the thing, too. In all of these studies that they conducted, even when sort of playing around with those different variables, it never found, like, nothing completely mitigated 
all the negative impacts on the recipient in terms mm-hmm. of feelings of self-objectification, feelings of safety. There was never a, a perfect scenario when it was like a guy saying something lewd or threatening or inappropriate and the recipient was like, and I feel great. I, I feel like a strong and powerful person walking through the streets. There is, there's no, no way you slice and dice it. Does it not have a negative outcome? Even if it's a small one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also, as I was reading all of this too and, and thinking about the kinds of, especially the more lewd things that are said on, or even just the lewd implications that are made in very benign statements. Um, and even just in the looks, you can just be looked up and down and mm-hmm. feel as violated as you would if a guy propositioned you for sex right then and there. And I feel like it says also so much about, in many ways, how sexually backward our society is when this kind of sexual communication in a public space is often deemed complimentary and benign, whereas Mm -hmm. we still can't get sexual consent and communication between two people in private spaces, like straightened out. Yeah. Like, why is that? I mean, there's so many there's so many layers. And also, I feel like, too, the whole thing of, well, if he's attractive, then it's a compliment also leads to the question of, well, why is being called hot by a stranger like the the best, most validating thing for a woman? You know, like, why is being called beautiful the the most coveted kind of compliment a woman can receive in our society too. There are yeah. lots of layers to this. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and I, I think that the historical context of all this is so important to take into account, especially if you do argue that catcalling is totally benign because it's actually not. Well, because it's not about compliments. It's about power. It's all about power in the same way that rape is not about sex. It's about power. Mm-hmm. And, and am I saying that all men who tell women to smile are rapists? No, but it's still it is a fact of it's, it's an issue of power. Yeah, because I have a hard time thinking that the men who yelled at me to smile were yelling at other men to smile. Yeah. I have a hard time believing that it was just like, gosh darn it, you guys. I just want the world to be a happier place at this train Could station. Could I just see more smiles? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, when you, when you look at that, look at things in the context of, of that, I think that says a lot too. And so it's really important to not just have this conversation with adults and fellow people in the world who get catcalled and harassed on the streets in public against their will. I think it's important to talk to kids about these issues, too. Maybe not go into so many gruesome details, perhaps, but to discuss issues of consent and what is and is not appropriate. And we want to acknowledge, too, before we close out that this is we're talking about a, a very slim minority of men who are doing this. But the reaction of that slim minority behavior to the, you know, the majority's reaction to it says a lot. Yeah. But now we want to hear from our listeners because I have a feeling that lots of people have lots of things to say. And we want to hear from everybody on this because everybody has a stake in this, because at some point we probably all exist in public spaces. 
So momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from someone who would like to remain anonymous about our episode on lady lawyers. And she writes, as a practicing lawyer, I can tell you that shaming does happen in court. Early in my career, I was at a a federal court hearing with senior partners. And because I had forgotten to drop off my dry cleaning after work, I had to wear a royal blue pinstripe skirt suit to court. I was the only person not wearing black or gray. While not a single one of the male partners who I worked with ever made a comment about it, at the end of the the hearing, a 35 to 45-year-old male Department of Justice attorney walked around to our table to the opposite side where I was standing, came up, stood right behind me, leaned in and whispered, nice suit. Needless to say, I vowed that I would never again wear anything but black or gray to court. While I still wouldn't wear a royal blue suit to federal court, there is a lot of theater involved in going to court, and part of the show is playing to your audience. I have friends whose single male colleagues put on wedding bands before trials because studies have shown that juries trust married men more than single men. Like Michael J. Fox's character on The Good Wife, I think most lawyers would gladly alter their appearance or exaggerate a disability to sway the jury or the judge in their client's favor. In response to your question about how big this problem is, it isn't a big problem because unlike TV, most lawyers don't go to court so often. So thanks for that insight. So I have a letter here from Lauren uh, in response to our Lady Lawyers dress code episode. And she might not agree with the author of that last letter, Kristen, in terms of staying true to just black and gray. She says, as a lady lawyer, I am very conscious of what I wear to court. I'm a Midwestern, middle-class, raised gal, but at 35, I became a named partner in a Boston law firm through sheer hard work and a few smarts. As unfortunate as it is, women in the courtroom do need to think about what they wear and how they wear it much more than our male counterparts. However, this does not mean that women should shirk their individuality. Wear a skirt suit that hits just below the knee and a modest button-up shirt, but make the suit red. I've found that so long as the length and neckline are appropriate and what comes from your mouth is intelligent, judges and fellow lawyers will respect you. I never wear black suits and I always wear stiletto heels. Ask anyone in my courthouse and they will tell you I am a force to be reckoned with. Lots of love to you, ladies. And if any lady lawyer or hopeful lady lawyers in the Boston area, I would love to help her succeed in any way I can. So thank you, Lauren. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources so you can read all about the history of smashing the mashers, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 